John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we desire happiness and we desire joy. And so we come to your spirit asking, would you give us that joy today? Would you give us happiness, the good news of Christ come? Um, Would you give us a joy that not only has he come, but he is alive and well today? And Lord, we ask that you'd be with us during this time to to bring us into a place where our hearts again reflect upon your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, the year is 1890, and all of Great Britain was engrossed in a man who actually seemed to be able to help. Um, He seemed to be able to... Solve the problems, solve the mystery, solve the issues where other people had failed to do so. Um, he saved the day. At times he saved Great Britain. And you could argue perhaps in some ways he saved the world. His name is Sherlock Holmes. And he's a private detective. He's mysterious. He's able to see what other people are not able to see. He solves the insolvable. And he lives at 221B Baker Street. And, and, and of course, you know this, and I know this. Sherlock Holmes is just the figment of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's imagination. He never existed. Friends, Sherlock Holmes is just a fictional character. He doesn't exist. And this is where it gets weird. Because so much did the people of England want Sherlock Holmes to be real. That at the real residence of 221B Baker Street, 
You know what happened? People wrote to that address. And they wrote to that address. And they wrote to that address. Now the real 221B Baker Street in London actually belonged to um, Abbey National Bank. So think like a U.S. bank or a Wells Fargo. And Abbey National Bank had every reason to just take these letters and just put them back on the burn pile. But they hired a full-time secretary whose only job was to take the letters in, to read them, and begin to correspond and write back to some of these folks. And folks are writing in not just, I don't know what happened to my missing you know, watch, uh, everything to here is a murder that needs to be solved. And it, it's amazing, because they would write back trying to consider their case, their problem, their, their whole reason for writing. Edgar Smith wrote in 1946, asking the question, what is it that we love in Sherlock Holmes? The times he lived in, they were exciting uh, end of the 19th century, the Victorian era. Uh, The place that Holmes lived was important. London, England was fat with the fruits of her achievements. But more so, he says, Holmes himself, he stands before us as a symbol. Symbol, if you please, of all that we are not but ever would be. Let it be said more simply that he is the personification of something in us that we have lost, but never really had. Thus, we long for Sherlock Holmes. But I have to admit that his description of Holmes sounds a bit reminiscent of another person that we gather around here this very morning. For us, many people want to believe Christianity. They want to say, This is all nice. Jesus coming to bring us grace. Jesus coming to bring us forgiveness, to die in our place. But how do we know he really existed? How do we know he's real? We weren't alive at 30 AD. How do we know that when we pray our prayers, we're not just essentially writing Abbey National Bank? You say, I wasn't there. Well, friends, this gospel that we are in this morning These opening chapters are for us because these opening chapters, and as the book even closes, takes us there. The reason for the book, why we're not dealing with a fictional character this morning, is John in chapter 20, at verse 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. John's gospel is for everyone who wasn't there because John is taking us there. So that by believing, you may actually have eternal life and stop dying. Believing is connected with life. Question, does what you believe give you life? Does what you trust in this morning give you life? Is there a possibility that you believe or put your hope or your trust in something that could be robbed from you? What are you waiting for that will add to the full meaning of the whole reason that you're living, the full glory that you, friend, and I need this morning? This Christmas morning, we will see a source of glory that supersedes all others as we look here at verse 14. And I'm going to read it again to bring it to mind to you. Consider verse 14 again with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This side of the cross, this, it, it, it is hard for us to let this fully sink in. It, it is difficult for us, we take this so for granted, to consider God walking in these doors and living right here amongst us. The theologians call this his eminence. There's, there's two, two sides to this, God's eminence and God's transcendence. Now, eminence has this idea of his closeness. Transcendence has this idea of God's powerfulness and far away. And, and so that you have the, the deists like Benjamin Franklin who considered um, God to be more of a, a transcendent God. And so God is the type of God who would wind up the, the watch and he would set it into motion, but he backs away and he's, he's too busy to be concerned with you and your problems. He doesn't really care about what you're going through. He is, he's, he's busy. He's off afar. He's transcendent only. But then there's the, the imminent side, which is God is present. And, and if you push from the deist side all the way to the, to the transcendent side and over push that side, you, you begin to say that God is everything. This is the sort of, um, view that people like Einstein and others held to. It's found in modern Buddhism and neo-paganism. It's this idea that, well, God is sort of so close that he essentially becomes you. He's me. He's the birds. He's the trees. He's sort of in everything. But friends, both of these ditches bring you to the same pit. If you push God off to where he's only transcendent and far and removed and he could not possibly have a relationship with you, you don't have God. And if God essentially becomes just so imminent that he's everything, do you really have him either? Friends, what does God want to reveal to us and show us by Christmas? He shows us he is utterly transcendent, but he's also utterly imminent. Uh, consider with me God dwelling with us. This is what is found in verse 14 here. God dwelling with us. And you go back into the scriptures and you, and you survey your mind, uh, in your mind, the different places where God has, has dwelled with us so that we go back to the garden. God creates the sun, the moon, the day, the night, all the creatures. It's good. God creates man and woman. It's really good. And then, They're in relationship, enjoying time as God is dwelling with them until the serpent says, come, take, eat. And then it becomes not good and sin separates. Sin is is what separates us from, from God because a good God who is holy cannot dwell or be in the midst and presence of a rebellious people who fought against him. The, this is where we first see God's dwelling, and then we later see it again with the tabernacle. God does not abandon the rebels. Instead, he provides a way to be with them. It is a way for them to really live, knowing God is with them. And so this idea of God dwelling, as is, is it's found even in the uh, Old Testament text, the Greek version, it is skenao. It's that word tent, like camping, dwelling. Same word that we find here in verse 14 where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because God, in Exodus, he camps with the people. It's found in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, where we read, and, and God is saying, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell, there's our word, in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, again, the same word, and all of its furniture so that you shall make it. 
And as you've discovered this idea of this tabernacle where God would have his dwelling presence amongst the people, and we find what is patterned in there, it's supposed to be a, a mini archetype of the garden. And so things are meant to be beautiful, uh, overladen with gold, and, and you end up with uh, a lot of, of produce imagery because it's trying to refigure this place where God would dwell with his people in the garden. And then God calls them to worship him there, which they do. Sacrifice happens with the bulls and the lambs, which is to be a representative uh, in the place of the people, the sinful people. There's the priest who will mediate and minister there. So they believe God, they trust him. And though their enemies are many, they, they live with them, with the presence of God there. And then we come to the next major stopping point, the temple in first Kings chapter eight, where Solomon says, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to, here's our word, dwell in forever. And so the glory of the Lord shows up and the priests cannot even minister there because in the temple where the presence of God is, the, the, the glory of God fills the temple with this cloud and it's overwhelming to the priests. They have to leave because God is skenaoing. He is dwelling. He's tenting with his people. And people only know God in a very particular way in dwelling in the temple. And the only hitch is it was rather impersonal. God was veiled. And again, due to sin, his dwelling didn't last. He wasn't even able to, to, to be before them in this manner for very long. And so it would be centuries later before God would truly dwell with his people again. Not until we read here, verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone and was coming into the world, meaning Jesus, to which we get at verse 14 again, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so here in this passage, we finally get this flesh uh, and dwelling, the skanaoing among us. God dwelling with his people in the temple, mediating his presence to us via the temple where Jesus says, this is the real temple. All of these others were blueprints until you get right here with this temple. You destroy this temple and in three days I will rise again. And so we find in Jesus the true skanao, the true dwelling, the true tabernacle, the face of God to the people. And so much so that when Philip says, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father and it'll be enough. And and Philip, you could picture him just leaning in to, to Jesus and Jesus leaning in and saying, Philip, I'm right here. I'm dwelling with you. And, and, and his body is the veil that was ripped. Hebrews tells us by the new and living way that was open for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, so that we would have access to the true presence of God. He's the great high priest. He's the one to be worshipped. Even when the pagan magi come, they bow down and worship him because God had come and camped, had tented amongst them. Now, if rebels are going to come in contact with the God who created them, then they must enter the temple. The very place where God dwells is Jesus Christ, God clothed in human flesh. 
Friends, in Jesus, we have all the promises that we read of in verses 12 through 13, where John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, And why is it that God didn't just come down then as a spirit? Why is in the flesh? So that he would trade our failing place. So that you would continue to live rather than die. So that you could take his righteousness and really live. Friends, what Christmas is trying to communicate to us is there's nothing that you and I can do to climb our way up to heaven. God must leave the heavens and come down to us. To dwell amongst us. To live amongst us so that he would be our true and perfect representative. So then from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple, God's glory is there. It was dwelling with them. After the first temple, it was destroyed. The second was reluctantly built. But friends, when the second temple was rebuilt, his glory never returned. The shepherds, the people of Israel, they, were, they weren't just waiting for the, uh, uh, his presence to come in. They were waiting for his glory to appear. This is why we read here that we have seen his glory. In verse 14, again, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Now, if you're like me, glory is difficult to define. Somebody asks you, what's glory? You're like, ah, it's a bit fuzzy in your mind. It's broad. It's wide sweeping. I think it picks up many ideas and concepts into it. Wayne Grudem quickly summarizes it as the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. Other theologians have said that there's a weightiness to glory. There's a powerful, it's powerfulness, it's weightiness and heaviness to someone. Glory is said to be a gripping thing. It's something that you and I cannot ignore. And so I ask you, where have you experienced it before? Are the places where you go, there was a moment there where I caught this idea of glory. Have you ever been in a stadium and the national anthem is being sung? And you know when you're standing up with all the people, you have your hand over your heart and all these people are listening in and this person is singing in perfect, beautiful pitch. And they come to this point where they say, oh, say, does the star-spangled banner yet wave? Or, Or And then eventually the or the land of the free. And then there's always some guy who like does a like a, a howl at that point, like, ow! You know what I'm speaking of? But the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up in that moment for some reason. And I think it's only in those moments where you're just beginning to sense a little speck of what glory is. Um, and we could say that glory in this context is... The revealed person of God as he discloses himself to us in Jesus Christ. Glory of the only begotten. In other words, the type of glory that a father might give his only son. If you only had one child and it was a son and you said, I I just want to brag on this one. I want to make much and weightiness of my only child here. This child is the best child that there ever could be or ever will be. And so you begin to make much of them. This is what is going on here with God the Father giving the glory of the only begotten. Moses, recall, he famously says to God, Hey God, show me your glory. 
And I think in God's way and in God's timing, he says, you want to see my glory? Look at my son. Look at my son. And here it is that this glory is revealed to us. The father in Jesus, which comes not just with grace and truth, but grace upon grace. Isn't that interesting phrasing? I don't know if you've reflected on this before or heard this taught in a way where we have this idea of grace upon grace upon grace. And um, oftentimes I think this is explained in ways of, well, God's grace is amazing and it's just never ending. It's kind of like the ocean waves where wave after wave after wave after wave of grace is hitting the shore. Grace upon grace. And I think that idea about God's grace is surely true. I, I don't think that that's what this passage actually means, though. Um, this tremendous grace that we have here in Christ is a grace that is upon a different grace. It's grace on top of a grace. The NIV tries to help us by saying this is grace in place of another grace. So you scratch your head and you're like, well, if this grace in Jesus is replacing a different grace, what's the different grace that it's supposed to be replacing? Well, if you keep on reading right here, it's Moses that brought the law. And this is why this passage, as you get down in verse 16 through 18, it says, from the fullness, we've all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, in other words, the idea of when Moses brought the God's people out of the uh, slavery in Egypt, there was a rescue that happened. God saved his people from bondage and, and decay. And so then he saves them. And then what begins to happen after that is God then gives the, the law as a response to the mercy that they just received. He says, I've given you mercy. Now walk as I dwell with you in this manner. So it was a very particular bracketed grace that came through Moses. But what John's saying here is that grace that came by the redemption from Egypt and then following the law, this grace is replacing that grace. This grace is on top of that grace. This grace, friends, in Jesus Christ is a whole new thing. The entire message in life of Jesus is a tremendous display, both of these characteristics of not just grace, but as we read in verse 14, where it says grace and truth. And, and I know you, as you survey in your mind, you know, many folks who, who have either a graceful attitude or people who are very much, we need to stand on the truth. And so you can think of folks in your mind where you go, wow, they really land hard on truth. Or they land really strongly on grace. It's so rare to find both of these traits so wonderfully in somebody. And only in Jesus do we find these traits fully and perfectly. Perfectly truthful. Perfectly graceful. Uh, Don Carson, uh, a friend uh, of his, um, he, he has this great story where he talks about this issue of Jesus' grace and truth. He, in his college days, there was um, a Muslim man who he had befriended and was in town up in Canada at the time and where Don Carson was. And everything was sort of shut down for the Christmas holidays. So he says, hey, let me take you over to the Canadian uh, Parliament building and we'll go for a tour over this Christmas break. And so they get in the car, they get to the Parliament. He's showing them around the Capitol buildings and all of this. And 
they enter into the parliament and in the in the lobby area when you first walk in um there is these amazing tall pillars now his friend who had come uh, was a Muslim man named Muhammad, and Muhammad w- had just finally begun to uh, try and understand a little bit of Christianity because Don had given him a, a Bible to read, and so he began with John chapter 1 right here. And so he's reading and he's reflecting and he's chewing on what does it mean to be a Christian? What do these Christians really believe? So they enter in to this parliament building in the lobby. They're seeing these pillars and the tour guide there, along with about 30 other folks. He says, if you'll see this pillar at the very top there, there's a a carved image that is Socrates. And we have Socrates here in this lobby because the government must be based upon wisdom. And then you'll see this other pillar over here. And at the top you'll see carved is Aristotle for the government must be based upon knowledge. And then there's this other pillar here, and you'll see at the top is Moses, um, because the government must be based upon law. And Carson's friend, uh, Muhammad, he, he is there and he's looking around with these other tourists as the tourist, tourist guide is explaining all this. And he says, uh, the tourist guy says, well, are there any questions? And Muhammad raises his hand and he says, where's Jesus Christ? And the tour guide, um, looks puzzled and says, well, what, what do you, what do you mean? Where's Jesus Christ? And Muhammad, thinking he had been misunderstood because, you know, he is Pakistani and his accent's really thick. So he yells it even louder. Um, and he says, because he thought he was being misunderstood, he says, where is Jesus Christ? And Don Carson had to sit back and re- reflect on this for a second here. Um, what, what was his friend getting at? And then the, the Muslim man says, I read in the Christian Bible that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? And so Carson says, here you have in the very secular parliament building here, a Muslim man asking where Jesus Christ is. Why? Because Muhammad was understanding something deeply as he was reflecting upon John chapter 1. Because Muslims, they understand law. They get Moses. Moses understand the 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 uh, Quran speaks very highly of obedience and the law. And he's just finally starting to tap into this idea of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. And so Carson says, I wanted to find a, a crack in the ground to crawl into. But here at the same time, this Muslim man is asking everybody with all these tourists, all of them going, what's going on? Where's Jesus Christ? And he says, I thought at the same time, well, preach it, brother, you know. And, and so here the importance we have of this grace that is found in none other than Jesus. Friend, I just leave you with some questions this morning. Is this grace yours? Christians, when we gather around the table here this afternoon or an evening with family and friends, do you remember that you're a recipient of this tremendous grace? This mercy in Christ, that not one bit of it is earned. And therefore, we as Christians have to be the most patient, the most kind, the most forgiving, and yes, the most gracious people. What do you believe, friend? Does it bring you joy? Does it bring you glory? 
Does it bring you grace like this into your life? You know, if I were to condense this passage here, what John is saying here in just a, a single line, it wouldn't be complex, but it is profound. Jesus is God dwelling with us, revealing to us his glory, his grace, and his truth. And the glory and the grace and the truth found in Jesus is not a glory and grace that can dwell forever with sinners. He, he, should have, he shouldn't have come, but he came to give his life in the place of sinners. To sacrifice, providing a way for God's unhindered glory to surround a people, therefore making them holy. And so I'm just turning the page in my Bible here to close out reading a few verses from John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, he comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, don't forget, this has been proclaimed. John has written this to us so that we would believe. So we'd hear this good news and it would settle on our hearts even this morning. And we believe that the Son has indeed come, giving us all his grace and his truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask and pray that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Uh, Father, we admit and confess we are too easily entertained (laughs) too easily um, distracted. Uh, But we pray and ask that by your spirit, you would again bring to our our minds and our hearts the, the gravity and the glory of the gospel in Jesus. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.